station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, movie arms dealer, Melissa Kersher. Hello. <laughs> and uh, we have with us, once again, our uh, companion for the Bond movie series. We're going to call her a movie cellist, Chris <laughs> Vanderkamp. <laughs> I, I, like, I like cellos. I'm okay with this. Uh-huh. Gee, uh, well, Hi, everybody. <laughs> so welcome back, Chris. Uh, you are here once again to join us for our next installment in the Bond movie series. We are watching The Living Daylights. So, Chris, you need to tell our audience what you know about The Living Daylights. I can't make the cricket sound, but if I could, I would be making the cricket sound. You I know do. nothing about The Living nothing Daylights. Nothing about The Living Daylights. <laughs> I know Timothy Dalton's in it because you guys told me that. <laughs> See, so you know something. Mm-hmm. You know something that that you know that Timothy Dalton is in it. Timothy Dalton is James Bond mm-hmm. in The Living Daylights. Timothy Dalton is uh, the second least represented Bond in the Bond movie series. Because yes, he only George, did two. Yeah, George Lazenby did one. Timothy Dalton made it to two. He is considered by many uh, one of the least successful actors as Bond. Uh, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's something... Uh, 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 an assessment both Melissa and I somewhat disagree with. Yeah, I, I really like <clears throat> Dalton as Bond, and I I presume part of it is informed by the fact that, you know, when I was young, I went through the Roger Moore years, and, you know, I saw occasionally saw them on TV, and they were really, really goofy. Yeah. And then by the time this came out, this came out in 1987, when I was about 13, 12, 13, 12, 12, and I went, oh, Oh, this is this is good. I like it. I like it, and and I like the new Bond. Uh, it, it was it's a lot less goofy, still a little goofy, but a lot less goofy than what Roger Moore years became. Roger so, Moore by the time yeah. by the I mean, A View to a Kill was his final film, which is atrocious. Which is, it's just terrible. Um, Thanks for make, not making me watch that. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, what was before a view to a kill? You have you oh, have I've all got of them it, there. I've got it right I, I can't here. remember the yeah. order. Yeah, Octopussy. Oh, that was terrible too. Um, yeah. And then before Octopussy was. Yeah, I'll get the, uh, the list. <laughs> Melissa has all of these here, so yeah. we can. That's not for a your eyes only. Before, before Octopussy was for your eyes only, which was actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the the thing is that 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 Moore had, especially in his last couple of films, really devolved into uh, a cartoonish representation of Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and Timothy Dalton comes in and presents a Bond that is almost nothing like the Roger Moore yeah. James Bond. Yeah. Well, and Melissa, weren't you saying last time that by by the end of it, of you to a kill, mm-hmm. he was really aging out of the role. Oh like, yeah, vis- he had been for a while, visibly aging out of the role. Yeah, he was probably too old for the role by Moonraker. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and uh, you know, even but, in even in the good films that followed that one, mostly for your eyes only, I think that uh, he still it's like. He could play the secret agent, but when he was playing the uh, man's man and the womanizer, it, it was disconcerting. It yeah. was uncomfortable. Well, I mean, um, the, the, if the scripts had been better, we wouldn't have cared yeah. <laughs> so much about that. And, Which is and why in For Your Eyes Only, it wasn't really something people commented on as much as in the next two films that right. were horrible. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, when, when the script isn't good, then you start picking apart the other things that you see on screen. And hit, uh, Roger Moore's age was part of that. So, uh, with I mean, all that is to say that uh, Timothy Dalton comes in at mm-hmm. the end of what has mostly been a weak series of films for Bond. Uh, Roger Moore starts out strong, and then his last series of four because i think moonraker was the one right before for your eyes only yes, wasn't it, was. it so there's one good one in that final series of four films mm-hmm. and three that are considered some of the worst of the bond franchise yeah. so well moonraker has its own entertainment value and in, in that it's so insane it's, that it's actually kind of fun it's now. ridiculous but that yeah. doesn't make it good bond uh, goes to space Space Bond. Space Bond. Space Bond. Space Bond. We're not watching that. (laughs) I'll have to watch that sometime 
with, with a, a space bond battle with a lot of alcohol. Was oh kind of God! What I was yes. Thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Dalton comes in and, and without giving too much away, he's going to really change the way bond is perceived mm-hmm. for a couple of films. And that's probably what hurt him more than anything else. Well, it, uh, but I think yeah. also what hurts him a little bit are the scripts, which are a little clunkier yeah. than some stuff that comes later. I like this one's better than uh, the second movie that he and, did, which is License to Kill. And we'll have to have that conversation yeah. too, because uh, generally among Bond aficionados who who are like Melissa and I, uh, Timothy Dalton apologists, mm-hmm. uh, it's generally agreed that one of Timothy Dalton's films is pretty good and one of Timothy Dalton's films is not as good. However, there is considerable argument as to which of those two films <laughs> yes, it is. I see. Uh-huh. And in this particular situation, I actually fall on the other side of the divide from Melissa mm-hmm. and we are watching the film that she uh, has defined as her favorite of the two Timothy Dalton films, but we'll probably spend a little time on License to Kill as well, just kind of uh, because we all have, we we all are, all us Bond aficionados have our opinions and they must (laughs) be shared. And uh, we're not really going to do that right now. What we're going to do is we're going to go watch The Living Daylights Mm -hmm. and not License to Kill, The Living Daylights Mm -hmm. with Timothy Dalton. Then we'll be back after we do that. And we are back. Many things have plummeted out of the sky and exploded. Many smoldering looks have been given by our hero. And uh, we have to find out what uh, Chris thought of The Living Daylights. I actually really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I, I liked it. Um, obviously, I don't have a basis for comparison between the two Dalton films the, to, to weigh in on the this one is decent, this one is not so decent. But I, I enjoyed this. Um, I I liked, I think, my first thought is that out of the Bond films that I've seen, this seemed to me to be, so far, the closest to the archetypal spy yeah. plot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the KGB agents, the buying lots of drugs kind mm-hmm. of thing, the, the nefarious villainous plot seems to be the most, the, the closest so far to... This is what a spy movie is about when mm-hmm. you think about spy mm-hmm. movie, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to a James Bond movie, which is kind, of, which kind of morphed away from. I mean, they're kind of spy movies on the front, but it's a. They're really action to, movies. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're excuses to make cars fly into the air and explode. Yeah, um, as we saw in the, very early in this film. Oh goodness! The, yes. the, yeah, there were, exploding there were cars exploding there were in the air. Pre credits. Pre-credit cars exploding in the air. Yes. In the Uh, air just above the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, I think actually, and it's interesting. I mean, the ones we've chosen, especially the last two, uh, they've both been, you know, about drug plots, which aren't about a villain trying to take over the world, which, strangely enough, I think for the majority of, like, Roger Moore's career, that's what they were all about. All of his movies were about the evil entity, the evil, the evil bad guy trying to completely control the world, mm-hmm. um, and yet the movies we've watched, Goldfinger, really, it's just about him being super, super rich. Um, yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Honor Majesty's Secret Service, that one was actually a plot to take over the world. And oh it, yeah. And yeah. So it, it was a much, much stranger plot. But then, uh, then, then, the Roger Moore film to Live and Let Die is about a drug kingpin just trying to control the heroin market. Mm-hmm. Which would probably segue into Super Super Rich. Yes. No, totally. And this one, too, is really about somebody trying to take uh, to turn a bunch of money into a lot more money. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, the, what, what are these bad guys trying to do? Well, they're not they're not not going to deliver the Russians their weapons. It's just they're going to take the money they got from the Russians buy opium with it, Mm -hmm. sell the opium to make a lot more money, Mm -hmm. and then go back and buy the weapons for the Russians that the Russians wanted in the first place. Yeah. It Uh, seems needlessly complicated. 
it well, if you didn't have the money to begin with, you needed a way to do it. But why would you keep the money in your Swiss bank account for six months instead of having the opium uh, exchange set up to happen perhaps slightly more in conjunction with when you got the money? Um <laughs> Obviously, these people have no sense of, like, how investing in financial markets actually work. Yeah. Uh, And obviously, they don't have any idea what kind of uh, investigative services the Russians have at their disposal uh, or spy networks where they can find out what they're spending the Russians' hard-earned money on. So... um, (laughs) Well, if we start picking apart the plots of any well, James yeah, Bond, yeah, it, this it, is it, not going to go well. As as yeah, we discussed, remember, one of the what happened last time. Yeah. One of the interesting things of watching this film here through the lens of uh, the uh, twenty teens is um oh yeah, the good guys, the Mujahideen. Is the Mujahideen is the good guys who, of course, later become the Taliban and they're the bad guys. Yeah. And uh, well, that's partly we fucked up. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot to unpack if we want to go into the political history of uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, but certainly, but, but we're not watching Charlie Wilson's War. We're no, watching the Living Daylights. We are watching the Living Daylights, <laughs> and uh, the they, the Mujahideen at this time when the film is being made are still the good guys because the Russians are still the bad guys. But what's interesting, I think, about this movie is the way the Russians are only kind of the bad guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have we have our our defector who's actually the bad guy in the film, and he's trying to get us to assassinate somebody whom we should think is a bad guy, but actually turns out to be kind of a good guy. Mm-hmm. And then, then we have all the Russians in Afghanistan who are clearly bad guys because we can kill as many of them as we fucking want. Oh, well, yeah. So they are all wearing the fur hats. Yes. Which in, signifies bad guy. In Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. That seems like it would be warm. It would be very warm. And also, I think that Russian wearing fur hat is, at least at this in this time frame, is automatically a signifier of this is a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, this for is a bad. bad guy. This is a except, bad Russian. Except for uh, Robin Williams in Moscow and the Hudson, and that's different. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then Russian played by Sala. Yes, good Russian. Yes, because because you know he he was in Sliders and <laughs> he's Gimli. Russian. He's, he's a good guy. Yeah, we we know him. We he's, know him. <laughs> That was where I was recognizing him from, was Sliders. Yeah. I loved that show. What I really enjoy about about John Rhys Davies watching him in this movie is John Rhys Davies is a giant. Yeah, he's a gigantic guy. man. Yeah. And, he, of course, he plays a dwarf in, <laughs> in Fellowship of the Ring. And it's just funny to look at this gigantic man and think... Wow, they really did. I had to do a lot of work to make him look smaller than. It's called forced perspective. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I just, I just always envision the the conversations that Peter Jackson had with his cinematographer people after yeah. the casting was all done. Like, you guys, guess what? <laughs> guess who I got is Gimli. <laughs> it's gonna make your lives really, really suck for eighteen months. Did I mention we have a few puzzles to solve when it comes to size? At least Elijah Wood actually is kind of bite-sized. He's yeah, a tiny. He's, he's a small guy. Yeah, he's he's small. John Reese Davies. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, so you guys, we're gonna have to make John Reese Davies look smaller than Elijah Wood. Yes, isn't this gonna be fun, Joy? And the cinematographers are going. Crazy. They're all uh, New Zealanders, and they're like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> they are this. all so rich in the wake of that movie; they don't care. Yeah. They really don't care. Mm-hmm. They have lots of Lord of the Rings money, just swimming in the Lord of the Rings money. But we're not talking about Lord yeah, of the Rings. What well, we are, um, right. we're talking Except about Wait, the Living Daylights. So I'm shocked. So Timothy Dalton, uh, uh, our good friend Romeo Azar, will argue is the worst of all Bonds, which I think is oh, com- lies. completely unfair because George Lay. Lazenby is the worst of all Bonds. He's just awful. Um, yeah, it, but he's in a good movie, and and that's the. And the I, yeah, I think it's really difficult because to me, but for George Lazenby, I like 
all of the men who have played Bond in different ways. And the thing that I liked about Timothy Dalton is by the end of the Roger Moore era, he had become a comical facsimile of James Bond. Mm -hmm. And so what Timothy Dalton did is he said, I'm going to play Bond a lot more serious. I'm going to make James Bond seem like, to me, the kind of guy who actually kills people for a living. Mm-hmm. Which is totally believable. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole conversation, what we started before the podcast and, and what we're doing now, it kind of reminds me of what happened with Doctor Who. Yes. Because yes, you look at much. Colin Baker and you look at Sylvester McCoy, and mm-hmm. by the end of the by the end of the first run of Doctor Who, they had become kind of a, a caricature. Yeah, and then, I mean, then you have Paul McGann who redeemed himself in Night of the Doctor, and then you get Christopher Eccleston. Yes, who Eccleston was a tiger, yeah. and he brought a seriousness back to the role, and that's kind of what we're talking about here too. Exactly. And before yeah. we go back to Bond, I'm going to say I do not blame Paul McGann for that horrible TV movie. That, that was not right. his fault, that, and I right, and right. I think I think saying Paul McGann redeemed himself is unfair. Yes. Paul McGann was was working hard. Paul McGann was doing his best <laughs> yes. with something that was awful. Okay, that's yes. that's fair. Yes. Um, but I I loved him in Night of the Doctor. Oh my oh, god! Yeah. Uh, have you seen with with Nell and I? Yes. Any great in that? He's so good. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> we're not talking about Paul. We're not yeah. talking. We're about not talking about Paul again. We are talking about Timothy Dalton. We're talking you know, about who's wrestling? Who's who's a, an amazing <laughs> wrestler? Speaking of Doctor Who Speaking connections. Doctor oh my God! <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes. He's an amazing wrestler. Watching him literally spit scenery is great. <laughs> yeah, uh, untethered Timothy Dalton is a joy to behold. But in and. If anything, that that gives you an idea of how good an actor he is, because in this film he's very subdued yeah. as Bond. He really holds it back. He and uh, I, I think that that was an effective choice. It was. It really. I mean, there's still a few quips and wisecracks, but they they tone it way back. And they actually feel naturalistic, which is the thing that bothers me about a lot of the Bond movies that come before it, because he tosses off one-liners like they're. They actually are a part of normal conversation, not the, oh, I have to have a one-liner now. Like Roger Moore. Like, yeah, like Roger Moore, which is, you know, part of Roger Moore's charm in a way, but uh, this is much more naturalistic in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that he had to make a split from from Roger Moore. Even and Roger Moore was very very popular as Bond, and even if he did become sort of that caricature as he, as he. As he faded mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. Bond. Yeah. Um, when he was good as Bond, he was a very different kind of Bond. And it was an effective choice for Dalton to come in and really change that. And I think that's what a lot of people found jarring. Yeah. yeah um, but, but he's much closer to the Ian Fleming Bond than anybody who came before him, even Connery. Mm-hmm. Very much true to the, the actual mm-hmm. written character. So... So, yeah, and, and he even said when he was going to do the role that that's what he was trying to do, was, was do a role that was closer to the original Ian Fleming Bond. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't catch on. No. He, Which is unfortunate. Uh, well, it's, a, it's unfortunate, but, I mean, it's partly um, the franchise didn't know quite what it was doing. Um, like, if you just look at the trivia on IMDb, most of the trivia about this film is like, eh, they didn't quite know what they were doing, they kind of mashed this script together, and then they decided not to do that, and then they did this, and then this, and then they were trying to cast a new Bond, and they talked to so-and-so, and it, like, Mel Gibson, and like, everybody and their mother, they tried to cast as Bond. Uh, actually, they, they wound up uh, talking to Pierce Brosnan about this time, but he was locked into doing Remington Steel, and there was so much... Uh, contract negotiation that just ultimately fell through that Brosnan was not able to take on the role. So they went ahead and hired Dalton. They hired Dalton. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and sure enough, Dalton does two movies. He walks away from the role and like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say within hours, but it was very, very fast that it was announced that Brosnan was taking on. Right. And we'll talk a little more about Brosnan uh, when we get to his film. But um, so, yeah, it really feels like uh, the cards were stacked against Dalton in a very real sense. And also the nature of movies was changing in in the 80s. I mean, this is the second half of the 80s and we're we're starting to I mean, we mentioned the Russians are starting to be 
good guys, kind of. And there's also they're also bad guys. But this is the era when we're getting movies like White Knights, which Miriam Diabo was also in, which starred Mikhail Baryshnikov, who had defected to the West. And, uh, you know, we, we started getting several artists defecting to the West. And we're like, well, they're Russian, but they must be good guys. And there's starting to be a lot of gray area there, even in the middle of... And then the there was Yakov Smirnov. And then it was Yakov Smirnov. Who didn't help anything. <laughs> no. Um, it doesn't help anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, of course, a few, well, like two years after this, that's when the Berlin Wall falls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when the next Timothy Dalton film comes out, which has nothing to do and this with step, with yeah. Russia. Yeah. But this is the first uh, or the last Bond film to have a Cold War plot. Right. And even then, you look at the way you know, Gorbachev is is uh, the leader of the Soviet Union now. The Cold War, while it is not thawed, is certainly warming. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you can see that in the plot yeah. of this film. Uh, even as there's still this element of the Russians as the bad guys in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it, it, is, it is a little bit confused. And I think one of the things, um, Pat... Uh, you know, and and both Pat and I like License to Kill better. And one of the reasons uh, Pat talks about a lot, and I agree with, is the villain in this film, our main villain, Georgi Koskov, is really kind of comical and cartoonish. Oh yeah. Um, and he's the the super nasty guy is kind of our arms dealer guy, mm-hmm. but he's not in very much of the movie at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he too is just kind of a. Yeah, uh, an afterthought. They don't have a th- strong villain for Dalton to play off of, ultimately. Right. A- as much as I love Joe Don Baker. <laughs> yeah. And that... and, and uh, License to Kill does have that kind of cuckoo crazy pants villain thing going, especially since they have a young Guillermo, not Guillermo del Toro, Benicio del Toro. Benicio del Toro. <laughs> and as like a henchman role. Yeah, he's, and he's, he's bonkers. Yeah, he's a he's a bonkers and, fucking henchman. He's awesome. Yeah. And and the another nice thing about License to, to Kill is the concept of it, which is uh, Bond is basically fired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, that's it, interesting. It, which is really interesting. And in this one, on the other hand, I think the henchman in this movie is one of my favorites because he's just yeah. kind of this doesn't talk much, strangles people with a Walkman cord. Yeah. Just kind of a badass mm-hmm. walks in and takes charge of the situation. And uh, the only way he's going to die is if he goes up against Bond. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, on the... <laughs> And I, I do like the the Bond girl isn't a bimbo. Yeah, she's, she's, she's a cellist. Than the, mm-hmm. than the you know she's like a competent professional in her field, but you know she's yeah not she's not you know the kind of person or, yeah. yeah she's not the kind of person that's going to beat up a bad guy because she's you know a, a cellist. Yeah, and we can accept that uh, as as a reason why James is going to have to do most of the ass kicking. Mm-hmm. And I believe this is the first film where James is kind of a, a, a one-woman dude. Like, yeah. If you count the pre- he has yeah. He has the pre-credit lady. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. But and he flirts I mean, with a few women through, yeah. but it does seem like when he's with his cellist, he's not going to be... Yeah. He's not going to be playing the field. I found her a little clingy, especially Oh, goodness, in the, yes. <laughs> especially in the plane scene. Yes. Like the, no, don't grab him. He's trying to fight, fly the plane. Well, it can't be that hard. She was able to do it without his help for a really long time. <laughs> she almost ran the plane into a mountain. Yes, and I'm still she managed to have the plane climb and descend without crashing it into the ground, which is actually, for somebody who's never flown a plane like that, impossible. Especially with the... the the back door open. Yeah. It's it's not just God. it's not just unlikely. Yeah. It's it's, <laughs> it, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's it's something that cannot happen. And I realize this is a Bond film, so we set that aside. <laughs> but I'm just saying if she could keep it flying that long, she probably would have noticed the mountain. Uh, maybe. I don't maybe. know. Um, I'm pretty sure she did not notice the mountain, considering how close they were to it when he noticed that there was a mountain. Yeah, you'd think he would have noticed the mountain earlier. Yeah. You'd think. Well, he was busy. He was kind of busy. Well, I know. I know. He was busy. Fighting the bad guy, what I think is one of the better henchmen 
Oh, ending. he's great. I like that uh, sequence fights. a lot. I that love it cool. with with the you know fl- hang flapping out the back yeah. of the plane oh, and You know what? I, I I really enjoy the action sequences in this movie. Yeah. For for as ludicrous as it gets with when you really notice things exploding that shouldn't explode, <laughs> you know, it's like there's a lot of unnecessary and yet awesome exploding going on but i love the like the hand-to-hand sequence in the kitchen the way that goes together like a rube goldberg machine you know the knife goes under the grill and then there's a guy flying against the grill but he does this and then this happens and this happens which is kind of what i really enjoy about really well choreographed fight scenes yeah and and that airplane scene is great too with the oh and then this happens and he punches the guy through the net and then uh the knife is established and then the knife changes hands and here's what happens with it and yeah it's it's all very easy to follow you under you action consequence yeah action consequence you can see what's going on they were definitely really i i was i was thinking this during the film that wow there's a lot of like classic shoot 'em up scenes in this Mm -hmm. and lots of Mm-hmm. Lots more violence than yes. we've seen before, or at least that I've seen before in, in our progression. Mm-hmm. Right. And we established the bond. I mean, when it comes to t- following orders, he follows orders to the letter at times rather than, you know, because yeah. his his job is to kill, <laughs> yeah. kill a man. And so he's like, all right, well, I'll technically kill him. Mm-hmm. Um so we can get to the bottom of this because I'm virtually positive that he's not who our real problem is. And they're just doing this to throw us off the scent of what's really the problem. And they take that. And and, and with Dalton, the nice thing is they take that a step further. So in this, we see a real sense of bucking at authority when Bond has his own idea of what's right and wrong. And then mm-hmm. License to Kill will take that the the next step. To where Bond is like, what he's being told to do is something he's unwilling to do. And so he quits. Mm-hmm. So he can do his own thing. Mm-hmm. And he do- he goes totally rogue. Um, and that's that's got its own appeal to it. Yeah, and I, I think my biggest beef with the film is it's got such a strong base concept. I don't feel that they really took it to the level that it should have been. The other thing. One, one more thing about the action scenes, though, mm-hmm. and I'm tr- I'm still trying to figure out what it was, but I way way back when we watched Goldfinger, I pointed out that that Connery was not a physical fighter. No. Mm-hmm. And I had not seen that in Connery or Lazenby or more. Mm-hmm. I saw more physicality in Dalton. Yeah. And yeah. I'm still trying to figure like. Which is I interesting. Would, He's like the only one of all those people who has never served in the military. <laughs> he, he wasn't trained in any sort of combat. He's just an actor. But I would but, believe that yeah. Dalton would win a fist fight with somebody who knows what they're doing. Right. That he's at least got a, a decent chance of coming out on top. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what they did. I don't know what he did. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> well, Dalton is an actual Shakespearean trained actor of... So he knows how to fight with a sword. He knows he knows how to he knows physicality. He knows how to portray yeah. it, which is and I think that just a body consciousness yeah. thing. It, it he could, understands how he moves and what his body should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a body consciousness thing. I think it's also an evolution of fight choreography. That's probably um, true. Too. You know, we've got the late '80s. Fight choreography has been moving, has been has been improving through the '80s. We get to the '90s and we start seeing the introduction of Hong Kong fight choreographers coming into Hollywood, yeah. and that is going to change again the way fight choreography happens. And we'll see that in the next couple of Bond movies. We see mm-hmm. uh, in the way that they they are going to start changing the fight choreography again and it's going to start having a much more modern what we would consider a modern kind of blocking right. to fight choreography but Bond has always been a brawler yeah. and the thing is that I think Dalton brings that kind of sense of being a brawler mm-hmm. to the role but a sense of really, I mean, he doesn't look as uncomfortable in it as as I think more always kind of did. Yeah. Um, yeah. He looks like he's thinking ahead. Yeah. Through not just, when you say brawler, I feel like a brawler is kind of living in the moment. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to do what instinct says and I don't even know what I'm going to do next. Dalton somehow is 
able to do that, but also think one or two steps ahead. I'm mm-hmm. going to smash this chair over this guy, and then I'm going to yeah. grab this bottle over here and bash it over his head just to make sure. And I am climbing up the back of this net. I'm going to look for the face of my opponent. I'm going to punch him in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to then cut my boot off, <laughs> which, which I find really funny because the year before was Aliens, and that's how... Aliens hands. It's like, oh, somebody watched Aliens. Yeah, but they must have been filming this movie. Yeah, about the same time, but... Hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, They knew people. people. Yeah, somebody said, hey, you know, it's not we're doing an alien. Oh, I've got an idea. I don't know. Um, Melissa, what do we have in our our, uh, book of of living daylights (laughs) that we should share? Uh, Let's see. You know, most of the... um, most of the trivia about this movie, like like I said, is mostly about things that did not happen or things that were going to happen that ultimately did not. And most of that stuff's boring. So, um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Dalton was up for Bond like five different times it, before they finally put him on the job because, he, like, as early as 1969, they were talking to him. And he was just a young pup that, it, like, even he was like, I'm way too old or way too young for this. And so eventually it did fall in his favor and he got to be Bond for a couple of movies. How old is he when he's doing this film? Oh, let's see. He was in, a, I want to say he was in his early 20s in 69 when they talked to him. So He's probably in his in his early 40s, which That's is about, about right, right for Bond. That's probably about right. Yeah. But I'm going to look it up while you're talking. Yeah, you should. Um, also, let's see. Um, so this is the first movie without Lois Maxwell as Money Penny. We have a new Money Penny, and uh, Carolyn Bliss was only around for the two Dalton movies. So Money Penny was uh, recast with Brosnan, uh, which is uh, kind of a funky story because uh, the woman that was cast as the Money Penny after Carolyn Bliss was a friend of Carolyn Bliss, <laughs> and she was like, "Oh, I'm just glad it went to a friend of mine," and she didn't really. She hasn't really done anything terribly significant before or since. She was just money penny. He uh, was 43 when he played Bond yep, in The Living Daylights. That's about right. And then um, Mariam Diabo, kind of the same story a little bit. Uh, she kind of was a big thing for about 30 seconds around this time. You know, She, would, she was in White Nights and she was in this. Uh, her career started with a terrible, terrible, gory sci-fi horror film called Extro in the late 70s, I believe, early 80s, and then her career kind of proceeded from there. Uh, not terribly remarkable, except for this and White Nights, um, but she here and there, and it's just low-budget stuff that you've probably never heard of. She did, in the early 2000s, uh, write and produce, and, and uh, she's married to a filmmaker, um, I, I can't remember his name, she's in his movies, or they're collaborating on something. I felt like she kind of had one facial expression throughout most yeah. of this film. She's not a great actress. Character. Yeah. The 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 cellist has a career in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't think, and that's one of the other things I, I prefer to kill over the Bond girl in this film. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember who was in License. I'm going to need to look up her name now that you bring it up. Yes. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, you for being <laughs> Carrie Lowell. Carrie Lowell. Okay. I, I, I like Carrie Lowell quite a bit as mm-hmm. as Pam Bouvier in that film. The largest role for Q in any of the Bond films. True. He actually shows up and is a sort of a sidekick for Bond in the final, like, try to take down the bad guy series. Oh, cool. So yeah. it, it, it just is nice because you've got this character that's been hanging out on the periphery of the James Bond uh, store of a person. Instead of, because even in this film, he's kind of the caricature. It was very much an offshoot of what what happened in the more years. Mm-hmm. There would there would always be this Q scene where he'd go in. They'd be testing out a, a new device. Q would get to deliver some horrible, horrible line about mm-hmm. this this new or whatever it was, and then pay attention 007 and show 007 some gap. 007 would make horrible, horrible jokes about them, and then we would never see Q again. Lights. Yes. Uh, and then uh, it, they they completely mess with it in, in a view to a kill, mm-hmm. or license, license to kill. License excuse to me. Kill. There's a lot of killing going on in James Bond. Kill, yeah. Anyway, um, and, and then of course by the time we get to the the Daniel Craig years, Q is completely remodeled in in a couple of the movies. Yeah, because Desmond Llewellyn has has passed away. Yeah. So 
That's. But, but I mean, even we'll get into that later. Yes. Yeah, we'll get into that. The Daniel Craig years. Yes. Um, so Charles activated the rocket because he was visiting, <laughs> the, visiting the set that day. That's hilarious. So there's a Prince Charles. It's also a fairly famous photo. And of, that's why he'll never be king. Yeah, there's a fairly famous photo of of Princess Di breaking a bottle over his head. That happened on that same visit because they they gave Princess Di a breakaway bottle. <laughs> she smacked. Prince you know, Charles. one might have. Well, inferred have, certain inferred things about their relationship about, yes. about how that all was going to work out if her first instinct when you get a breakaway bottle is to break it over her husband's head yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm it just, makes for good photography I'm really. just saying just saying just saying <laughs> uh, let's see um, oh there's the picture I'm just pulling it up right now oh yeah she looks super happy isn't that great <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to put that in the show notes. Yeah, totally. I I think that's got to happen. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, I did. Just look at her; she's I just delighted. At this picture. Oh, yeah. Hey, li- <laughs> listeners, if you haven't seen this picture, you need to Google "Princess Die Breaks Bottle Over Prince Charles" um, <laughs> because that's hilarious. Well, I'm going to put it in the show notes. I, I think there might actually be footage of that too. Like they actually filmed it too. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man, I just had visions of Melania Trump breaking, breaking a bottle over Trump's head. And oh. like, wouldn't that be sweet? I am going to excuse myself. I need to go get new pants. Oh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> what else do we have? <laughs> see more gadgetry. Um, the uh, the weird ass looking sniper rifle that Bond has. Now that big fucking thing at yeah. the beginning. Real deal. It's, sure. It's a it's it's actually a real gun. It's actually made by Walther, who who also hmm. makes the Walther PPK, which is the gun of choice for James Bond. Uh, but a lot of people looked at it and was like, "What the hell is that thing? That must have been made for the movie." And it's not. It was. It's a real thing. Um, there's also um, the 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 thing where they launch it through the pipeline. Uh, also a real thing. It's called the Scouring Pig. It's it's in use on the Trans Siberian Pipeline. Uh, let's see, the Medivac helicopter that you see in a couple of the sequences uh, was actually an actual Argentine helicopter that was uh, captured during the Falklands War. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, gadgetry. Yeah. Let's see, what else? Um, yeah, we've got Rock of Gibraltar, which I've been on, and, uh, yeah, yeah the, exactly. the, the really the globe trotting bit of James Bond yeah. is really I mean it's in in full force here. Yeah, and I I really appreciate it. it's like that's about all you can do in Gibraltar because it's about the size of the rock. yeah. There, there there's <laughs> a point where they give you a shot from the air and you're yeah. like, I think that's all of it. Yeah, so it's uh, and it is. Yeah. Okay, so to get into the city of Gibraltar, you you first have to pass the border, and then you have to run across an airstrip which goes into the water on both sides. So then you're on this little peninsula of land with the giant rock and then a city laid around it at the base. But there's not a whole lot of city there. It's just there's a not a space for the city because, yeah. you know, there's a big rock. There's a big rock there. And at the bottom of the rock is the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there are about 18 million seagulls on that rock. And it's one of the noisiest places on Earth. That I have ever witnessed personally in my life, and the seagulls when they screech, they scare the monkeys and the mo- sorry, they're apes. They scare the apes that live on the rock, and then they start screaming, and then they scare the seagulls which start screaming. This doesn't sound like fun. No, so it's the it's, it's noisiest, the noisiest and poopiest place yeah. on earth. It's it's bonkers With, between seagulls and apes. Yeah, yeah it, it was fine. It was one really fun watching the apes assault tourists. So it was. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so... So, also, <laughs> also, and they show the apes assault somebody in this movie, so yeah, totally. it makes sense. It, yeah. They they really went for the full Gibraltar experience. It's true. It's true. Uh, but, Wait, yeah. You know what? I'm remiss, because I have yet to comment on how Timothy Dalton wore his suit. Oh. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. And you must talk about that. I do need to talk about that. I, I was very impressed by the wearing of the suit, thought it was great. I think my favorite look for him was the tux, because mm-hmm. it's such, with his coloring... And his eyebrows. Oh yeah, he 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 rocks the tux. He, does, he rocks the tux. Looked fantastic in it. Um, in terms of the regular suit, I think his tan suit. Yeah, I liked very much. Again, <laughs> um, what are you laughing at? No, I I, I, th- I find your evaluation very uh, very thorough. Yeah. 
uh, which I, is impressive. I um, yeah, he I like about that. Well. What I does. what I like about that tux especially is that it's got its special sniper. It's a sniper tux, yes. so it changes from a tuxedo to the the sniper shirt, so he yeah. can't be seen as he's about to shoot our cellist. Who, mm-hmm. yeah, it, 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 there, there's there's a lot of things about about what they do with Bond's clothes in this that I like. Mm-hmm. Also skiing. There is there skiing. skiing. There was okay, a skiing. There wasn't, a, there wasn't much skiing. There was a skiing car. There was a skiing car. And my, one of my favorite things in the entire Bond series is that action sequence hopping into the cello case. Yes. And skiing down the mountain because that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't bitch about the skiing because I, I can't bitch when you're skiing in a cello what case. What are we going to do? Technically, they were sledding. It's, uh, it, they were okay, doing things okay. on snow. I have seen... The actual cello case. It it has yeah it. The cello case. It has they, skis on the bottom. Yes. The cello case they used. Yes. Right. The one wow. they actually used. Not not you know that was in the stunt. Not yeah, the. That was in the stunt. Yes. Speaking the, of conversations, okay, so you guys, what you're gonna do is you're gonna get in a cello case. The director thought up the sequence, so uh, they he and to convince the producers that he needed to do it, he actually brought a cello case with him and he hopped into it and saying this and this will happen and. So there's wow. Dr. John Glenn in a cello case demonstrating and trying to convince the producers to let him do this sequence. And he got his way. He did. Yeah. I think my favorite gadget, though, was the car laser yeah. bit where he lasered the wheels out yes. from under the, the, the other car. That... I, I need one of those. Oh yeah, I would. I would be incredibly irresponsible with using it, and I don't even care. But I need one. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, so we're getting we're getting on about the final thoughts. So I just want to make sure that we we uh, that we have any that you have anything else to share, Melissa, before we move there. Oh, I got I got a few things. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I've got. Um, so, <laughs> of course, John Reese Davies. You know he he does like eight movies a year, right? Yeah, he's in he, everything. Yeah, he, he's he got almost 300 credits on IMDb at the wow. moment. Well, he's been in a movie with Christopher Lee and he's jealous. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see, Joe Don Baker, we didn't talk about much. Uh, he, he's still around. He's a big old Texan. He uh, shows up in a lot of 1970s movies. If you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, the episode of Mitchell is a lot of fun because it's a... <laughs> Terrible, terrible, terrible John, Joe Don Baker movie. But uh, he came to fame in doing a little movie called Walking Tall. Yep. In the 70s. Heard of it. He portrayed, was, was it a sheriff? Uh, a real life story where this rural sheriff took on corruption and... And gang members and stuff. By Did he beat people up with a baseball bat? He beat there was a, up ba- with a right. There bat. was he was the baseball bat guy. Yeah, he was the baseball bat guy. Yeah. Um, Cameron Shaw, uh, that was played by Art Malik, who is a Pakistani uh, uh, actor who is, also does a lot of English movies. He was in True Lies, so he was having a pretty good career at this about this time. Until until you couldn't. Until it was no longer okay to have people who looked Arab be villains. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, Julie T. Wallace, the, the woman with the pipeline who distracts the yeah. super, mm. supervisor. Uh, she's Major Iceborg in The Fifth Element. I'm <laughs> super happy about that. It's like, oh, I remember who she is. Yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, also there's a bit part for Virginia Hay, who was the blue chick. Uh, well, one of the two blue chicks on Farscape. Also, the woman in white with the headband in Road Warrior. Well, there you go. So, uh, now, the actor who plays uh, Koskov. Yeah. might need to mention him. I don't... I recognize him. And it's weird. He's one of those actors that I recognize. I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. And, And then you kind of... It's it's uh, yeah. Jaren Crab. Yeah, you know what? I don't know much about him. I I, um, I wasn't recognizing. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah. Um, he's from the Netherlands, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, this was this was uh, John Barry's last Bond movie. This was the last movie, Bond movie he did the score for. So it. The end scene, the the orchestra is conducted by John Barry himself. Mm. So it's a nice little farewell. 
That does remind me mm-hmm. there it, he he's in a lot of movies for just a little bit. But well, the, yeah. I think the most the the movie that recognize him from uh, would be The Fugitive. He's oh, he's the I seen that hood. Mm-hmm. Um, as as was John Rhys Davies. No, that's not John Rhys yeah, Davies. No. That's the other dude who I always think is guy. John Rhys, but isn't John <laughs> Rhys Davies? It's it's the the John Rhys Davies alike. And I'm gonna look him up right now <laughs> to find out his name because it's super important. Um, and I can't find it anywhere. Timothy Dalton did his own Jeep stunt on Rock of Gibraltar. Oh, there you go. Screw it. We don't care who that guy was. <laughs> um, anyway. So, <laughs> uh, one thing on theme is by AHA. Yes. Uh, and, who, who uh. were famous for a hot minute in the 80s. Yeah, they, they were a one hit wonder. Care. I enjoy, and I like it better when it's orchestrated and used as, as, uh, as ground music. Yeah. Yeah. During some of the action sequences, but there's also a song by the Pretenders mm-hmm. that is used free closing credits one, and there's the one that our bad guy is always listening to in his headphones. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked I liked both the opening and the closing. Pretenders uh, did a great cover of "Live and Let Die" uh, on a really killer cover from her. So yeah, I did want to bring up the music, but I, now it's time for fun. thoughts about the living daylights. So I I really enjoyed Dalton as Bond. I mm-hmm. I liked his approach to the role. I liked the more subdued. I think that you put it really mm-hmm. really well that he was a more subdued Bond, and I liked that. So um, I, I think I may actually watch his other film on my own just to compare, okay, to see and decide which of the two you like better. Yeah, because decide which camp I fall into, and and but I liked this. I thought I thought it was it it. it fit my definition, I think, more than anything else I've seen, with the possible exception of Goldfinger, of what Bond films are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the the cultural notions that form, even when you haven't actually seen a Bond film ever, and I'm not counting Quantum of Solace in that. <laughs> um, and you should not. Uh, yeah. That's well, a for, for a variety of reasons, I'm not counting Quantum <laughs> of Solace in that. But, but no, this really fit the definition of, of what I've always thought that a Bond film should be, so I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, Dalton's a great Bond. I'm just gonna gonna come out of here. Ooh, there we go. All right, take that, Romeo. Boom! <laughs> Boom. Throw it on. Romeo, you can have words with me later. Melissa, final thoughts about okay, so this film. I'm totally obsessed with the Gibraltar sequence. Just saying. Okay. So the guy uh, who was the assassin on the Gibraltar sequence, um, they were originally going to have him played by a stuntman, but then they decided, like very last minute, that it should actually be an actor. So they called up Carl Rigg who was in a completely different country at the time. I think he was in England. And uh, he got the call and said, that said, hey, we're filming on the Rock of Gibraltar. Can you be here? And he goes, sure. He was babysitting his baby. And so he took the baby to the neighbors, left a note for his wife, and caught the first plane to Gibraltar. Wow. And then did the scene. Is he still married? Yes. Speaking of people bashing bottles over their shots. Well, he is a working actor. His wife probably understood. Well, yeah, Uh, he got the call to be in a Bond movie. It's like that. that that pays better than shredding the boards at some West End production. Yeah, so yeah. Um, we're going to assume that that's, that's why he did it and not just because he didn't want to take care of his baby. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was because it's like, oh my God, I get to do Bond movie. So my, my final observation is one that's always bugged me about this movie just because I, I mean, and I enjoy it, but I like the other Dalton movie better. And one of the reasons I don't like it is I think the final action sequence between uh, Bond and Arms Arms Distributor Guy yeah. is awful. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's like Bond does so many things that are dumb. Yeah. Especially, it's like I'm going to shoot at his face. Oh, he's got something protecting his face. I'm going to f- empty my gun into this armor that's not and it's not working I'm never going to try something different and it bothers me because that's not how Bond operates right. he doesn't just keep shooting at somebody's face when it's very clear there's something in the way of that face that will prevent him from actually hitting um, yeah and also this is I think the first Bond movie that actually ends in an arrest rather than the death exactly death exactly exactly Kozkov yeah. is just put onto a plane in a diplomatic bag yeah. uh, which we presume is code for I don't think he's going to make it back to Russia alive but the point is that it's not as satisfying mm-hmm. and 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 that that is one of the things that that I I feel makes this bond film less 
enjoyable to me than than License to Kill, which may be some spoilers for some of you as to how License to Kill might play out. But nonetheless, yeah, there's there oh, yes. License to Kill involves much killing. Yeah. Um, I I have warmed to License to Kill over the years. I will just say. But yeah, so, yeah, I don't hate it at all. And the other thing I that I did it. forget to mention is I believe this film features the worst Felix Lighter of any Bond oh, yeah, film. Oh, we didn't bitch about him. He oh, is oops. so bad. Oh, when he showed up, it's like every time he shows up, I keep going, is he a fake American? Is he like doing yeah. an American accent? No, I looked him up. He's from Florida. He's a, no, he does he does like talking with a gun and pointing with a gun. Yeah, like he's in hell? Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. It's like the dude's a CIA agent, but he doesn't know how to hold a gun. He just sort of whips it around like he's holding a pen. Uh, you know, are you telling me this is a put-up job? And you're like... No, that might be a subtle uh, commentary on Americans. It could be. Could it, totally be. It could be, but anyway, worst Felix Lighter ever, which yeah. is funny because I think the Felix Lighter in License to Kill is one of my favorite mm. Felix Lighters ever. So there have been a lot of Felix. Lighters. There have been a lot, and the next Felix, the Felix Lighter in License to Kill, is the first one that's Felix Lighter twice. twice. Yes. Um, so. Yes. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, uh, the Bond series changes Felix Lighters faster than Spinal Tap changes drummers. Faster than Bond changes women. Yes. Um, wow. <laughs> that's really fast. That's really, that's fast, really fast, isn't fast. it? I mean, especially if we're if we're hearkening back to on his Her Majesty's Secret Service when he was booking them he was by he was the booking hour. them by the hour. And yeah. Roger Moore, when he was getting later in the series, if there was a woman in that film, Bond was having sex with her. Mm-hmm. Just. A lady shows up, Bond fucks her. That's which, it, which, from what you guys were saying about how Roger Moore ages in the role, just gets creepier and creepier. It does. Yep. It gets it gets yep. less and less appropriate. Oh no, uh, there's a female bystander in the in the screen. Oh, oh my god, he's gonna. She's like eighteen, <laughs> and she's looking at him like he's the most beautiful man ever. And that oh. no. All right, so uh, we are now, dear listeners, going to be following Timothy Dalton into hot. Fuzz, which I cannot wait to do, and uh, which certainly will give an idea of the... uh, We should almost pair it with Point Break as well. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) But I think it really will give a good idea of the uh, range of Timothy Dalton. We had a lot of choices with Timothy Dalton. We could have done The Rocketeer. Although the the Um, top, top choice we have already done, which is Lion and Winter. Lion and Winter is a great film and a great Timothy Dalton role, but uh, Hot Fuzz is also... Something to behold. So we look forward to that. And Chris will be back with us as we move into Pierce Brosnan and we watch Goldeneye. Yes. So, uh, which will be the first, interestingly enough, post-Cold War Bond. Yeah. So uh, you can look forward to that. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Deep, deep.